few weeks ago, we began a series of messages out of the book of Romans, chapter 15, focusing on the fourth verse. Things that are written for time were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. We intend maybe to kind of close out those thoughts this morning. There are many other things other than just comfort of the Scriptures that can be derived from the Scriptures. For we know that Paul says that they were comforted by God by the coming of Titus, so that there is sort of a a comfort in companionship amongst brothers and sisters of like precious faith. There's there's comfort that comes from with each other and things of that nature. Um, but as far as comfort that is derived straight from the Scriptures, um, one of the last things that we want to speak about is comfort of the dead or comfort for the dead. And believe it or not, um, there is comfort both for the righteous and for the wicked. And that might seem like quite a... Uh, puzzling statement because it seems a few of you kind of looking at me like I'm kind of crazy, half like. So, uh, for the last portion of this sermon, we'll turn and look uh, at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, for the comfort of the righteous. Uh, but to begin with, we would like to notice the book of Ezekiel, chapter 32. Ezekiel 32 will lay out for us comfort of the wicked. Uh, Much of what we will cover at this point going forward uh, will lead up to us looking at the comfort of the wicked. Much of what we will say right now will be of no comfort to God's people. And it's not supposed to be, other than the fact that it doesn't apply to us. The church is in a wonderful position. The church is in a position where really there's no better position for the church to be in than in the care and well-taking of its Savior, Jesus Christ. We stand where we need to stand, covered by the blood of Christ, Protected by his hand. That is not the case in Ezekiel 32 for the one entitled here named Pharaoh. For the first um, 16 verses, God lays out to Pharaoh what he's going to do to him in a destructive judging manner. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 of Ezekiel 32 and in verse 16, these are the words that the Lord says to the prophet. Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him. Notice verse 16 of Ezekiel 32. This is the lamentation wherewith they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations shall lament her, they shall lament for her, even for Egypt and for all her multitude, saith the Lord God. Now, 
You may be thinking of the book of Lamentations, wherein Jeremiah observes the condition of Jerusalem and he weeps with sorrow over the city. And if you had seen what Jeremiah saw, you'd weep and lament for her as well. But that's not necessarily the connotation of this lamentation. This is a weeping for them because they refuse to weep for themselves. We are weeping in your presence because this is coming upon you. This is essentially a a funeral eulogy for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's a, a great multitude that he is connected with here in Chapter 32, there are six nations or six nations plus one, however you uh, decide to count it. In verse 22, the nation of Asher is mentioned. Verse 24, the nation of Elam is mentioned. Verse 26, the nations of Meshech and Tubal. Verse 29 is the nation of Edom. And in verse 30, you have the princes of the north and the Zidonians, and all the Zidonians. Now, whether the princes of the north are included in the land of the Zidonians or they're two different groups, you know, for this art, for this sake of this sermon, it, it, it doesn't matter. In other words, it's a well-populated place. This is what we're getting across here. But the second thing you want to notice about this is every one of these nations and every one of these people that are, that are grouped together with Pharaoh are described... Ten different times, beginning in verse 19, as those that go down and be laid thou with the uncircumcised. See that you see verse 19 says the uncircumcised. Beginning in verse 19, verse 21, verses 24 through 30, and verse 32, they are mentioned and called the uncircumcised ten different times. You say. Is that a big deal? Yes, that is a big deal. Number one, you remember the covenant that God gave to Abraham. He says, as a symbol of my covenant with you and your relationship with me, I institute to you, the Jewish nation, the sign of circumcision. And so the Jews were considered, they were the circumcised, and Gentiles and pagan nations around them were the uncircumcised. In other words... There's no sign of covenant between them and God as there is with Abraham. The era that, that comes with this is in many groups around us, they think that with the entrance of the gospel and the entrance of the New Testament church, they think that circumcision under the Old Testament was replaced with baptism, which is why you get uh, infant baptism in many Catholic places, Episcopals, the Methodist, Presbyterians, things of that nature. They, they still sort of bring that in and say, we've got to baptize this infant by proxy in name of their parents until they get to an age that they can make their own decision and then they can decide whether they want to be saved or not. 
I'm not, I'm not trying to throw off on anybody. I'm just trying to tell you why this exists. The, 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 term, the, the reason for infant baptism is we're going to convey upon the child the salvation of the parents until the child can make his own decision. Uh, keep in mind, we're completely eliminating God from all of this. But so they think that the circumcision or the practice of that from the Old Testament has been replaced in the New Testament with baptism. Well, I think that it is not. And for that, we could turn to the book of Romans chapter 2 and see what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, concerning this issue. Uh, Romans chapter 2, notice... Verse 28. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. We know what that means, right? You can look at a person by skin tone, by facial features, um, and by y'all know what circumcision is, just leave it at that. You can look at someone and see this is a category they fall into. Paul says, all of that's gone. It doesn't matter anymore. He's not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Listen. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. So we're doing away with that then. What's most important then, Paul? Verse 29. He is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Oh. So what is circumcision been replaced with? Actually, all along, circumcision was this one thing. It was an outward emblem of the internal working of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in the heart and spirit of someone dead in sin, there is a circumcision, a circular cutting or a cutting away that occurs. This is why the Lord said in, in another place in Ezekiel that I will take out the hard and stony heart, take it out, and I will give them an heart of flesh. Not, not, a, not, a, uh, not in the sense of flesh pointing towards sin, but a heart of flesh and feeling. Like you have, your body is covered with flesh. You have feeling in your hands. You have, you have feeling around you. In other words, I will take out this hard and stony heart, which is like a rock, and I will give them an heart of flesh that they may feel and lean after me. So there's this cutting away that Paul is addressing here that Old Testament circumcision was pointing to the entire time. That the greatest evidence that you belong to God is not necessarily your external outward works. The greatest evidence is that His Spirit bears witness with your spirit 
that you are the sons of God. That He testifies inside you. There's something in you that tells you you belong to God and that God belongs to you. Ten times in this passage, He's reminding Pharaoh, you're going to lie amongst those who were uncircumcised. You're going to lie amongst those who do not belong to God. This nation, many people in this nation, wish that they could just have an existence where there are no Christians. Well, guess what? One day they'll get their wish. One day they'll be in a place where there's not a single Christian. You got me? Uh, What he wants Pharaoh also to know is that as Pharaoh was, so were some of these nations. Notice verse um, 18. He says, Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations. So, One characteristic of them is they're a famous nation. Uh, The second thing is, go to verse 19. uh, Whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down and be thou laid with the uncircumcised. Here's a description that they're a famous nation. And it is a nation who considers itself more beautiful than anybody else. In other words, there's a multitude of people in America who were famous for being famous. They're just simply famous because the media puts their picture on TV 24 hours a day. They've not really done anything. Uh, Maybe except some lewd things that accidentally got leaked to the public and made them famous. The Kardashians. In California. What have they ever done? Not much. They're famous for being famous. Simply because of who their... I was going to say who their dad is, but I I guess I'd say who their dad was. Uh, When I was growing up, it wasn't the Kardashians, it was Paris Hilton. What was she famous for? Being famous. Why is she famous? Because her daddy is Hilton, the the hotel, Hilton. And she's simply the child that came from this, and she's famous for just being around. She's not done anything that made any difference. I do remember her being on David Letterman one night, hawking some beauty product that she was selling. And she said, you can find this in most any store. And David says, well, uh, how much does it cost? She says, oh, it's cheap. It's 70 bucks. The audience had the same reaction that you just had. Someone completely out of touch with everybody that's around them. Uh, These nations that Pharaoh is and will be named and numbered amongst, are nations with just 
outward appearances. Even the nation of Babylon was considered, you know, a a great and uh, mighty nation externally. By the buildings that they built, the size of the walls that they were, the hanging gardens of Babylon are considered one of the eight wonders of the world. The, The top of the walls that went around the city of Babylon are said to have been so wide you could race three chariots side by side around the whole city. This is an impressive place. It is such an impressive place that Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 walked out and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have made by my might, for my glory, by my power? And you know the story there in Daniel chapter 4 that the Lord kind of had to, had to have a little talk with Nebuchadnezzar. They're a famous nation. They may be physically prettier than everybody else. There's also something else here in verse 23. Beginning with verse 23 and going through uh, verse 27, it is repeated over and over and over. Notice the last phrase of verse 23. Right after it says, all of them slain, fallen by the sword which caused terror in the land of the living. See that phrase, they caused terror in the land of the living. That is repeated in verse 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. Pharaoh was that. Pharaoh was a man that caused terror in the land of the living. Now, whether it's the Pharaoh that's under consideration in Exodus or the Egypt that's under consideration in Revelation 11 makes no difference. Pharaoh wasn't a person. It was Well, he was a person, but Pharaoh is his title. Like like we have presidents every so often. Uh, Pharaoh was the title of the man who's in charge. So, you know, there was one Pharaoh that Joseph knew, but when Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation, there arose a new Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, and he was just a total terror uh, upon the nation of Israel. And you can go back and read that beginning in Exodus, uh, Exodus 2, about how bad he was, what a terror in the land of the living he was. Now, the Lord does not cut him short on this. The Lord brings that to his memory. Uh, Ezekiel 32 Verse 2 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, Thou art like a young lion to the nations. Okay? We'll give you this credit. He says, And thou art as a whale in the seas. Well, I mean, who tells a whale of the seas what to do? Who really tells the lion in the jungle what to do? Not a whole lot of people. Uh, now, <clears throat> this next phrase, it says, And thou camest forth with thy rivers and troublest the waters with thy feet. It's caused some confusion amongst some commentators. They say, how can it really be a whale of the, of the ocean and yet have feet at the same time? I don't think the text says that the whale has feet. I think it says, Thou art a lion of, uh, to the nations. Thou art uh, a whale of the seas. 
I think this next description is something completely different. I think it's another characteristic of him. It says here, Thou camest forth with thy rivers and troublest the waters with thy feet. All right, uh, you're in Exodus 32. Turn over to Exodus 34, just to kind of get an idea uh, of where this passage kind of goes. I said, I keep saying Exodus, it's Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel. I, I've had that problem all week long, trying to think about this. I'm in Ezekiel 32, going to Ezekiel 34. In 34, the Lord is chiding the shepherds of Israel. But I'd like for you to notice um, verse 17. Ezekiel 34, 17. As for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but ye must tread down with your feet the residue of the pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but ye must foul the residue with your feet. As for my flock, ye eat that which ye have Excuse me, let me back up. And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Now, what kind of attitude is that for somebody to uh, feed dirty scraps to the young and to the less fortunate, or to feed dirty water? To the needy and the less fortunate. Sounds like somewhat of a selfish, careless individual. Does it remind you, say, of the Marcos family that used to lord over the Philippines? That when they finally toppled uh, that family and ran them out, they go into the palace where Amelda Marcos and her husband lived, and they find just closets full of clothes and shoes and just luxury everywhere while the Filipino people starve to death. What kind of person does that? person bored of a conscience, maybe? person separated from God, maybe? I mean, what kind of person really sees somebody in that condition and just steps over them and goes about their way? Well, Pharaoh, you were that person. And all these other nations, just like you. So as you were, so were all these other nations. But guess what, Pharaoh? As they are, so will you be. See, he tells us in verse 11, For thus saith the Lord God, The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. By the swords of the mighty will I cause the multitude to fall, the terrible of the nations, all of them, and they shall spoil the pomp of Egypt, and all the multitude thereof shall be destroyed. What's going to happen? The king of Babylon is going to come, and he's going to ransack Pharaoh, 
and he's going to destroy the pomp of Egypt, the, the pomp and circumstance, you know, the glory of it all. Uh, you can go back and you can read uh, Isaiah 14 and read that chapter and get an idea of this as well, of the pomp of something being brought down and being destroyed. And here is something, here is just a most interesting note about this. The, the, the king of Babylon is going to be used by God to destroy the king of Egypt. One wicked nation is going to rise and destroy another wicked nation. You're seeing somewhat of a prelude to that today. We, we were having a discussion at the house the other day. Uh, we were watching we were watching the news um, out of London, and London had a, a race. They had a marathon, and the winner of the female side was very obvious a dude. You could look at this guy and see this is a dude who won the race and then stood and proclaimed girl power. And so the question at the house was, where in the world are all the feminists? You know where they're at? They're hiding. Because they have no idea what to do. You see, follow this. Follow this. We heard in the 60s, ain't no difference. We're all the same. Stop making distinctions between genders. Well, it took them about 40 years. But we kind of got to that place where this is something running through America. We're all the same. Then they started fighting in the 80s. What's wrong with being different? Straight, gay, doesn't matter. Just live and let live. Okay? So then the alphabet group comes along. You know, lesbians, gays, and bisexuals. And they're happy as they can be because they're all being praised for being different and the same at the same time. Until they're joined by another letter of the alphabet, the trans group. A bunch of men trying to act like women. Who are now running all over women's sports. And showing, oh, <laughs> there is a difference. Imagine that. Destroying Everything that a lot of young girls have fought for all their life. Where are the feminists? They don't know what to do. Because they've spent their whole life saying, if you object to our agenda, you're a, some type of phobe. And now if they stand up and they object to the trans agenda... Now they're the foes. And you're now seeing the left eat their own. You're going to see Babylon eat its own. But don't worry. Don't worry. In the book of Revelation, the word is clear. Babylon has fallen itself. But did you notice even in Babylon, even in Revelation, when it said Babylon has fallen, it said the kings of the earth shall wail for her. They shall weep and lament for her. 
The Lord says here in this passage that many nations shall weep for Egypt. They'll weep just like they did when Paul cast the demon out of that woman in the book of Acts. And they said, we've lost a lot of money because this gospel has come along. These preachers have come along. They wept for Babylon. They wept for Egypt. They weeped today when people, when sin is eradicated because a lot of wicked people in this world make their money off of your sin. At any rate. Beginning in verse 20 and going down through uh, verse 32. Every time, it seems almost every time that there is a description uh, of these nations or a description of what is going on here, you find this phrase, those that are slain by the sword, those that are slain and fallen by the sword. So in verse 20, it says, they shall fall in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. Uh, verse uh, 21, they lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. All the way down through the passage, uh, slain by the sword, those slain by the sword, which then brings you kind of to another point with this, that the place that Pharaoh is headed and the place that uh, all these other nations are headed, the place that the wicked themselves are headed is a place of disgrace. And that's outlined for us as you look at this. Um, in verse 24, it says, There is Elam in all her multitude, round about her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, which are gone down uncircumcised into the nether parts of the earth, which caused their terror in the land of the living, yet have they borne their shame. We as God's people sometimes get perplexed, we get confused, because we see, we see the wicked among us. We are just like Asaph in Psalm 73. We get kind of jealous sometimes because it just doesn't seem like there's any, any problems to the wicked. They just seem to prosper all the time. Uh, court system seems to be turned upside down. Justice is falling in the street, as the prophets would say. Where is justice for God's people? I think sometimes if we'll stop looking for it in this world, we'll find it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ready to run out here and lose everything I have to the wicked and live homeless the rest of my life. I'm just as human as the next person. But justice for God's people doesn't always come in this life. Justice for God's people is waiting in a day when there is no day. And waiting for a time when there will be no more time. And these wicked who caused terror in the land of the living and were beautiful nations and were uh, famous nations and praised amongst men, they are going to lie in a place where they bear their shame and they bear their sin and they bear their iniquity. It will be on them and upon nobody else. He says here in verses 24, verses 25, and verse 30, that their iniquity 
shall be upon them. They shall bear their shame, bear their shame. So verse 27, I want to kind of look at that one because that one also has this within there. But their iniquities shall be upon their bones. Verse 27. Says they shall not lie with the mighty that are fallen of the circum, of, of the uncircumcised, which are gone down to hell with their weapons of war, and they have laid their swords under their heads. This is kind of a message to Pharaoh that when you go down to the grave, you'll not go as the mighty uh, in the world around you. In the world around us. When the mighty have fallen, even those who are the most wretched despots this world has ever seen, they will go out with a parade. They will go out with banners amongst their people. The Vikings had a tradition that when a Viking died of something other than war. Is that as he was buried, he's buried with his sword. Now, the phrase here, with their swords under their heads, is, is an interesting study. We've all seen, uh, I think we've all seen, pictures of those being carried to their graves with their hands clasped and their sword under their head like this. The thought that I had from this, though, was that the sword is laid in the casket first and the dead is laid on top of the sword, signifying that it was not the sword that reigned over me, but I reigned over the sword. My enemies didn't reign over me, I reigned over my enemies. You see what we're getting at here? And that was a very, uh, that was a very prominent position for somebody to want to be in. Uh, dying with the utmost dignity and honor, right? And he says, Pharaoh, you're not gonna, you're not gonna die like that. You're not gonna have that chance. Because I'm coming upon you. And I'm taking you. You're gonna go down in disgrace. Just as the rest of these. That though the world around you may praise and laud you. He says your iniquities. The last portion or right there in verse 27 is. That their iniquities shall be upon their bones. And repeatedly through this chapter. He says thou will lie with the uncircumcised. In, by, by way of reference, I'm not turning there yet, but in Luke 16, in many other places in the Scriptures, there, there are multitudes amongst us who want to spiritualize the place of hell. That hell's not a real place. It's just allegory. Well, I kind of have a problem with that. I kind of have a problem with that because the descriptions of this place that the Bible has a little too literal and a little too real to be allegory. It is a judgment 
from God upon Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he will, starting in in, uh, verse 17, be cast down to the graves, unto the nether parts, down into the pit, down to hell. The la- the, uh, starting, starting from verse uh, 18 all the way through the end of the chapter, that's a pattern that you find. You find those phrases all the way through there. Casting them down to the nether parts, to their graves, to hell itself. And if, if this is just allegory, and hell is just the grave, then that means that some of the finest people you and I have ever known, and some of the finest people these other people have ever known, are cast into hell, into the very uh, depths, the nether parts of the earth, into damnation itself every day. You know, because we dig a hole, put something in it. Y'all, y'all catching what I'm alluding to here? This is not just a hole in the ground. This is a place that is a deplorable place. It says here, I know you've been waiting. Preacher, where's the comfort for the dead in this? Because I ain't found none yet. Right? You ain't found no comfort for the dead in this, have you? Not yet. Verse 31. Pharaoh shall see them. It, it, it kind of comes to also to my mind that um, some of these wicked nations that are down there, maybe wicked nations that Pharaoh has conquered himself. You know, <clears throat> you're driving down traffic. Edwards Lake Road. Y'all ever driven down Edwards Lake Road down here? That's the worst street in the world. There's three red lights on the street. And a hundred drivers who ain't patient. I don't know, I can't tell you how many times I have been passed on that road. They drive around me through the turn lanes and get around me only for both of us to stop at the next red light. That person in traffic who just rages around you and pulls up at the next traffic light with you. You want to look at them and say, feel stupid now, don't you? Hey, Pharaoh, where are you at? The same place as all the people you conquered. Pharaoh shall see them. Look at that next phrase. And shall be comforted. Pharaoh shall see them and shall be comforted over all his multitude. There is no solace to his soul. There is no deliverance to his distress. There is no mercy for his misery. His only comfort is that he is not alone. And that's it. He is not alone. And he knows where he's at. And he knows why he's there. You see, Luke 16 kind of picks up from this. In Luke 16, I do not consider this 
to be a parable. First off, there's nowhere in this passage where the Lord tells us this is a parable. He just simply states there was a certain rich man. And this is Luke uh, 16, beginning with verse 19, going through the rest of the chapter. He says that there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, as you read through this passage, see how many parallels that you can make in this passage between what I just described to you in Ezekiel 32. That he was a man that fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now, one of the reasons that we think this is not a parable is that there's no other parable in the Scriptures given where people are named. Objects are talked about. Corn is talked about. Wheat is talked about. Sheep are talked about. Even in the parables in Luke 15, where there was a man that had a hundred sheep and one went astray, and a woman that had uh, ten coins and she lost one of them, both of them as parabolic uh, teachings are leading up to a real situation that there was a man who had two sons. Anytime I've ever had to teach a lesson to my children, it's always best if I can grab a situation out of my own life and give it to them. It's always best if I can look out around me and make a life lesson out of something they see. And boy, they get tired of that. How come everything's got to be a life lesson? Because everything in life can be a lesson. The phrase is, you know, live and learn, right? Too bad we have to live to learn. Why can't we just learn and then live? But there's some people, they got to live to learn. And by the time you chop your fingers off, break your leg, as the man went to the doctor and says, I've broken my nose in two places, the doctor said, well, just stay out of those two places which those two places are usually not your business and where you don't belong, right? Did y'all catch that? Y'all, that, y'all just got real quiet on that. That was brilliant. Come on now. Uh, anytime I can give a true life lesson to my children, it always bears more weight. Because anytime I begin a story with, well, let's suppose... As a solution to their problem. They can let suppose a problem to my solution. You ever met that person who's got a problem for every solution? And sometimes you just want to slap them and say, you know what, stop whining. I know there's a problem. You've got a problem. I've got a problem. We all got a problem. We can't just sit here and whine about it. Make the problem go away. You making your job harder at work. is not going to make it easy on your boss. This is a real story. There was a rich man. There was a poor man. And the rich man fared sumptuously. And the beggar was laid at his gate full of sores. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He would have taken the residue of the field. You know that I read to you in, in Ezekiel 34. 
But even the rich man didn't have those crumbs to give him. And it says here in verse 32, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, if this is an allegorical story, and hell is not a real place, this just has reference to some other thing, I'm quite puzzled by the allegory of this story. Because I'm not puzzled by death. I know what that is. I've seen that myself. This says that those who died went somewhere. And not only did they went somewhere, they knew where they went. And they knew who they were, where they were. And he cries out and says, Father Abraham, you say, well, are, are the people in hell going to actually be able to see into heaven? Don't know. Wouldn't that be quite tormenting? Now, you say, why is, he, why is he reading this, though, from the standpoint of Abraham? Well, who did the Jews value the most? Father Abraham. They felt, we're, we're the seed of Abraham, so we've got to be children of God. And they forget. They forget that of the seed of Abraham, there was also a man named Isaac. There was also a man named Jacob. Right? But of the seed of Jacob, who was of the seed of Abraham, there's also a man named Esau. Excuse me, I said that backwards. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Right. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Esau would have followed, or as a child, been instructed to follow circumcision with Abraham. Are you with me? He would have been a circumcised, outwardly, individual. But it says in Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau weren't none of his. Now that's real easy for me to say about Isaac's children. Say it about your own. They also forget Isaac, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only child. Abraham had a child prior to him named Ishmael. And all that mess going on over there in the Middle East right now is a result of this family right here fussing and fighting. You think family feuds don't cause problems? Every bit of that mess in the Middle East is fighting between the descendants of, of Isaac and Ishmael even to this day. Abraham, Abraham also had children by a woman named Keturah. So Isaac and Ishmael, i got to speak real slow. Make sure I get these names right. Isaac and Ishmael weren't his only ones. Keturah had some also. You see what a mess we're creating here? But the reason that Jesus speaks to them 
from the standpoint of Father Abraham. That's who they honored, that's who they valued, and they thought they'd go there because of Abraham. They didn't realize you don't go there because of Abraham. You go there because of Christ. Because Paul will correct that in the book of Galatians and say, if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's and children of the promise. But for the sake of this story, he says, this man that goes to heaven, this poor man, this beggar. See, see, we're confused even in our life today. That if you have too many problems in life, you have too many difficulties in life, God just must not love you. If God really loved you, you'd never have any problems. You'd have all the money in the world. You'd never go hungry. You'd never have a problem in life. And if you've got problems in life, it's probably because you're unrepentant. And I've heard this out of people's mouths just in the last few weeks. I mean, this feller's telling me a story about a guy he knows. Just every time he turns around, there's a problem. He's wrecked this car. He's wrecked that car. He's wrecked another car. He was at his insurance filing for the car he just wrecked. And filing insurance on the new car he just bought and pulled out into traffic and wrecked that car. And his words were, this man might want to check his life. Well, that's entirely possible. It's entirely possible you're wrong also. Because you cannot guarantee me out of any page in the scriptures that God's children are going to go through this life unscathed, unhurt, and unbothered by the world around them. It may very well be, right before Christ comes back, that the children of God living in this world will be living on the streets, looking at the mansions and the houses of the wealthy wicked. Are we then going to say that God doesn't love us? Because I don't have the crumbs from the world? Or shall we say, the Master Himself even gives crumbs to the dogs. And if the only crumb I have from the Master Himself is Christ in me, the hope of glory, you're a lot better off than a lot of people on this planet. Here He says, it came to pass, what happens? Just as in Ezekiel 32, there was this constant downward step of going down, down into the pit, down into the grave, down into hell, that same thing is followed here. That the rich man died, verse 22, and was buried, and in hell lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father Abraham, this is verse 24, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. You see, we've been able, I think, to be real heavy-handed on the torment or the comfort of the wicked, because I think we take for granted what the comfort of the righteous is. Or I take for granted, y'all know what the comfort of the righteous is. It's everything that Pharaoh and his ilk will experience, exactly the opposite. 
It's everything that this wicked man down here in hell experiences, exactly the opposite. This man down here in hell looks up and he sees uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and he's not only tormented in this flame, but he's tormented because he is comforted. Lazarus is comforted because he ain't tormented with the uncomfort of the wicked. How many times have you ever heard, heard Elder Sonny Pyle say that heaven is one of the greatest places ever? It's a place where no friend of mine will ever leave and no enemy of mine will ever enter. You've heard him say that time and time and time again, right? Hell's exactly the opposite. Hell is a place where no friend of yours will ever come and no enemy of yours will ever leave. That's all they've got down there is hate and enemies and sorrow and fighting. The the murderers still want to murder, but there's nobody to murder. They're all dead. The thieves still want to steal, but there's nothing down there to steal but fire. And everybody's got that. And there's nothing down there to steal but time. And that's all they've got is eternity. The lust of their flesh still rage within them, but there's no way to satisfy their lust. There's nothing of earthly pleasure at all for them. But Lazarus is comforted. And that the troubles and the trials and the problems of this life are all behind him. You know, when I, when I was younger, well, let's just, let's just, Let's just say it this way. You've all heard it before. Someone say, I believe that so-and-so is looking down on me today. Some good fortune happens to them. A butterfly flutters by or something like that. Or, you know, a sparrow comes down and spares a moment. And they say, oh, that must be Uncle so-and-so, Brother Jim Bob, Sister Sally Sue. Somebody has come down and they must be thinking about me today. I sure hope. Well, let's just let's just pick out peas out of our own pod here. I sure hope Bill Compton, Howard Heron, Cenus White. I sure hope Chad has something better to look at than me. I sure hope they've got something better to do than worry about what's going on down here. As a matter of fact, I think there's somebody already in charge of what's going on down here. Almighty God is watching over me. I don't need a saint to watch over me. I've got the saint, the fire himself watching over me. I don't care about anybody else. They can't do anything themselves anyways. It's all in the hand of God. My life belongs to Him. Not somebody else. Abraham is at... Or or, or the rich man... uh, Lazarus the beggar is at rest in the bosom of whoever Abraham is. When that thief said to Jesus, remember me, thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said unto him, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, that, that portion there in Luke is, is quite interesting. I think, I think this is the end of Luke where that's found. When Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise.
23:43. Luke 23:43 and Jesus said unto him verily I say unto thee today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Those who believe in soul sleep that a man does not go to uh, heaven when he dies. When they come to this verse, they say, well, we have a problem here. The problem is, is that there's no punctuation in the Greek. So those commas and periods were added by translators. And really what you have to do to properly understand this is move the comma. That Jesus is not saying, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus is saying, listen to me. Jesus is saying, I say unto thee today, comma, shalt thou be with me in paradise. I'm just telling you today, at some point, you'll be with me in paradise. Well, if I permit you to move a comma, you've got to permit me to move a comma, right? So you want to move a comma? Let me move a comma. Verse 32. Verse 32 says, And there were also two other, comma, malefactors led with him to be put to death. See it? Let's move a comma. Let's move a comma and see what changes. How about that? And there were also, comma, two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Anybody out there smart enough in English to realize what I just did? When you move that comma and make it two other malefactors, you also make Christ a malefactor. And I said this to a man one time. He says, well, I know my Savior is perfect. I said, the only thing you know about your Savior is what this Bible tells you. The only thing you know about Jesus is what this book says. So if you're going to start playing with it, and moving stuff, and acting like it's a tinker toy, or a set of tinker toys, a bunch of Legos for you to play with, you've got problems. How about we just put all the commas back and read what it says? There were two malefactors crucified with him, and under one of those malefactors, he said, today, you're going to be with me right now. The other thing is, is well, somebody says, well, why did he say paradise? That means he didn't go to heaven. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Wherever Jesus is, is paradise. Wherever Jesus is, is going to be heaven. I don't care what words you want to use right there. Wherever He is, and I am, we're going to be satisfied. When I awaken His likeness, the psalmist says, I shall be satisfied. There's so much comfort. So much comfort ahead of God's people. When we awake in the presence of Christ and we're like Him, we're going to be satisfied. Problems of life are going to go away. Troubles of our life are going to go away. Now, <clears throat> if you go in there to see a brother, you go in there to see a sister, you go in there to see grandma, you go in there to see an aunt, what if they ain't there? <laughs> y'all act like y'all ain't never considered this. What if they're not there? You know, we sing that song. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there to see my mother. I assure you that there are people in our churches down through the ages 
who, if they're honest, will tell you their father never darkened the door of a church. Their mother never darkened the door of a church. There are people in our churches who say their children never darkened the door of a church. When Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts, and he looked up, and he saw heaven open. He did not see his family tree. He saw the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, standing ready to receive him. When you get to heaven, the greatest thing you're ever going to see is the face of Jesus Christ. And if you do not see others that you thought would be there, it is not going to bother you. Because you're going to know why they're not there. And you're probably going to know that you didn't deserve to be there yourself. Lazarus is comforted. The dead are comforted. The only comfort for the dead in hell is that you're not alone. The only comfort for God's people is that this day will never end. Time will be no more. There's no more sin, sickness, or sorrow ever. And it's praise and worship for all eternity. That we through comfort, patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Thank you for your attention.